Welcome to episode four of the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia podcast. This is your host, Scott Tracy. On January 15, 1947, a body is discovered in a vacant lot, bisected and drained of blood. On the 17th, the name of the murder victim is identified. On the 18th, the press learns the Long Beach lunch counter epithet and the legend of the Black Dahlia commands the headlines. In numbers, the victim is named Elizabeth Short for 22 years, 5 months, and 30 days. For a day and a half, Jane Doe number 1 is known as a victim of the werewolf killer. For 73 years, 7 months, 19 days and counting, she is the Black Dahlia. Aggie Underwood uses the werewolf to describe the killer on the first day of coverage. The name acknowledges the brutality of the mutilations and highlights the terror that the killer inspires in Los Angeles, as an inhuman monster is on the loose. Interestingly, other Hearst syndication newspapers, such as the San Francisco Examiner, don't pick up on the use of the werewolf name. That moniker is unique to movie town. And a movie horror theme in this movie-making town seems most appropriate. But as I look at the crime today, I might choose the vampire as the monster instead of the werewolf. Because a vampire is an organized hunter, ensnaring victims in a web of seduction and manipulation. Drained of blood? Sounds like a vampire. A wild werewolf is an opportunity hunter. But Aggie was there observing the depth of the damage to the body of the victim, and she cannot unsee the significant amount of overkill, which she reads as incomprehensible and vicious. And she chooses the name werewolf, as if a man had been so full of hate he acted like an animal, wild with the madness of rabies. The werewolf nickname is typical in that it refers to the killer and not the victim. That's common. I don't remember Lizzie Borden's mother's name, but somehow I remember she got 40 wax. The killer gets the moniker normally and the headline, the fame, not the victim. So we're familiar with the Zodiac. We're familiar with Hillside Strangler. The idea that a monster is the killer becomes part of the problem because the killer is not a werewolf. The police are looking for a monster and don't see him. The headline of the Washington Post on this day shows the degree to which the press picks up Dr. Driver's birdseed. Police seek mad pervert in girl's death. In the news on this day, a greyhound rider gets off the bus in Fresno and tells police that another bus rider mumbled in his sleep about how he should have cut the scar off the leg. Edward Glenn Thorpe is pulled off a bus at Modesto, and police find blood on his jacket. Thorpe is arrested and questioned. It gets worse for Thorpe. It's revealed that he viewed the Jane Doe body in the morgue because he thought it could be his wife, who had disappeared from Riverside. Thorpe is from Wyoming, so the Des Moines Register calls him a cowboy. The truth is less romantic. 
The Oakland Tribune tells us he's a member of the Cook and Waiters Union in San Francisco, and the union helps get Thorpe released after the questioning. The Los Angeles Times locates a witness who believed he saw Beth Short make phone calls. Quote, Grocery clerk Jack Fleming said, Last Tuesday about 10 a.m., a pretty, tall, slender girl, whom he recalls exactly answering the murder victim's description, came into the Daniel J. Reagan market at Hoover Street, clad in a gray pinstripe suit with short jacket, and made several phone calls. I changed a quarter for her, Fleming recalled. She didn't seem at all excited or nervous. She was very pleasant. She went into one of several phone booths facing the street and remained near them for about 20 minutes, occasionally waiting outside the booth as if waiting for a busy line to clear. Later, according to Fleming, she came out of the market adjacent to a corner service station and crossed Hoover at 58th slowly with an air as if she was waiting for someone. Then she walked southward on Hoover. This is significant because Tuesday, the day Fleming says he sees the victim, is the day before she is tortured and killed. This does sound very much like Beth. Her hovering by the phone booth is similar to her misconnections at the Biltmore Hotel. He calls her tall. How tall was Beth Short? She was five foot five, likely wearing heels. Note Fleming has Elizabeth wearing a gray pinstripe suit, not a black outfit. One can question if Fleming saw Elizabeth short or look-alike, but it's clear that Beth did not wear black all the time. At the Biltmore, she wore black shoes and a suit, but fluffy white blouse, white gloves, camel-colored overcoat, and no flowers in her hair. A dentist with an office in the Cherokee building on Hollywood Boulevard, Dr. Melvin Schwartz, dubbed her the Lady in Red because he and his nurse described a woman in a red dress who tried to gain favor by placing the doctor's hand under her skirt. John Egger, 20-year-old usher, describes Beth saying, The thing is, sir, we always notice a girl like that. She's a striking girl with that raven hair, blue sweater, or pink sweater. George Backos picked up Beth one night and went for a drive, parking on the Sunset Strip and chatting. She wore a black satin skirt with a sweater, a pink sweater. So she's not wearing black on black and flowers. But this is tasteful clothing. This girl who dresses fashionably, yet does not always have money for rent. Returning to the news of the day, the press introduces its readers to the French family in San Diego. Miss Dorothy French worked at the Aztec movie house as a cashier. She notices Elizabeth Short trying to sleep at the all-night theater. Dorothy takes her home to meet her mother. Elvira French takes Beth in. Mrs. French informs the police that Miss Short claimed she was a widow of an Air Corps major who was killed in a plane crash, and Beth Short told her that she bore him a child that later died. Miss French says that she was shown a newspaper article about the death of Matt Gordon, but the article had a line crossed through another woman's name. 
Miss French is told that the newspapers made a mistake and Beth was the bride. A frequent caller, according to Mrs. French, was a red-haired ex-marine. Elizabeth called him Red, sometimes Bob. Recently, Mrs. French got tired of boarding Elizabeth for nothing and told her she would have to leave. She said Elizabeth wired Red and that he came and got her. Be there tomorrow afternoon late. Would like to see you, Red, was the telegram she received. The Los Angeles police sends out a bulletin describing the red-haired suspect. His car is described as possibly a 1940 Studebaker coupe, cream or light tan in color, with a California license plate number. The suspect is described as white male, American, approximately 25 years old, six foot tall, weighing 175 pounds with red hair, blue eyes, and light complexion. Robert Manley is a pipe salesman and ex-army musician. Robert is not an angry, jealous Marine. He was never at Camp Cook. He's not the Marine that threatens Elizabeth Short in downtown Los Angeles before Beth is saved by Officer Merle McBride. Frankly, if you look, if you have red hair, then red's your nickname. But the press unfortunately attempts to tie everything to, quote, the last man to see Beth alive. Reporters locate Beth Short's lost Chicago trunk at the Los Angeles train station. Photos of Beth's sisters are now printed in the paper as well as a snapshot of Beth at the beach in Florida, sunning herself wearing a two-piece black swimsuit. An important telegram is pasted in Beth's scrapbook dated August 22, 1945, saying, Just received word that Matt killed in crash. Our deepest sympathy is with you. The wire is from Mrs. Gordon of Pueblo, Colorado. Her son, Matt Gordon, died on the 10th. The end of the war is four days later. Phoebe Short says Matt Gordon is the only man I know that Elizabeth truly loved. In letters addressed to Major Gordon, Beth wrote, Darling, if only all men were like you, when you come home, I'll never let you go. It's real love, because I've not had you out of my thoughts since we met. Now that I know you love me, there could never be another man meant for me. Now that you've asked me to be your wife, I do not date. This is a letter to Matt Gordon. It should be in Matt Gordon's belongings, not in Beth's keepsake album. So it was never mailed. Why not? Is it because it's not true? After all, Beth crosses off the name of the other woman in the newspaper article. Perhaps this letter is a practice letter, in case he says yes. After all, Mrs. Gordon doesn't think they were engaged. Regardless, if there was a ring or a promise, it has the same effect, because Beth believes and hopes that this is the love of her life, and she's never the same after Matt Gordon's death. But what are we to make of these many letters? Did Beth just change her mind and decide not to send them? Are they early drafts or true copies? I cannot pretend to know the answer. Was it common to have so many unsent letters as keepsakes? As her letters are found in her memory book, I interpret them as internal. For Beth's consumption, not an external message, but for her proof that she does love. 
Quoting from another letter, Yes, I've dated since I've seen you last, and most of them disgust me. Naturally, they're exceptions. If you want to slip away and be married, we'll do whatever you wish, darling. I'll wait no matter how long. I think it's a very good example of that diary style of letter that reflects what Beth may have felt at the time, but seems more like an imaginary conversation. Why would you tell your fiancé that you're dating other men who disgust you? So in 1945, after Beth gets the news that Matt dies in a crash in August, she quits her job in September. In December, she leaves for Florida again, but this time she doesn't get a job. In fact, she never works again. Elizabeth visits Indianapolis and Chicago before continuing to Long Beach to reconnect with Joseph Fickling. In April of 1946, Elizabeth told her mother she was engaged to Joseph G. Fickling, still an army flyer in 46. In January of 1947, he is a commercial pilot at Charlotte, North Carolina. En route to Los Angeles, Phoebe Short learns that her husband, Cleo, missing for 20 years, has turned up in Los Angeles. My goodness, she said, what did he do, just put it in appearance? Then she added, I suppose he thought he'd better clear himself. Phoebe said she had no desire to see him. Film actress Anne Toth, 24, is written in the paper as well on this day. She lived with Elizabeth that last summer in the same Hollywood rooming house and told police Saturday that during their acquaintance, Miss Short went out with several men but avoided introducing the men. And so the press prints a picture of bit player Ann Toth and highlights the Hollywood connection, ending the uh, rather short article by saying, Elizabeth Short's mutilated body was found 10 miles south of Hollywood Wednesday. Just as one would look at similar crimes to understand this crime, there's quite a bit to be learned by looking at how other crimes are reported in the Los Angeles newspapers. A false generalization about the use of the Black Dahlia epithet is commonly repeated in books and articles today, and the refrain goes something like this. Los Angeles newspapers of this time tended to create flower nicknames when gruesome murder cases had a female victim. The examples offered are the Red Hibiscus Murder and the White Gardenia Murder. There's also a name origin story that involves Aggie Underwood, who added color to a crime scene. This is a great story, so let me elaborate. Aggie removed a white carnation from a restaurant vase and dropped it on a dead body of a waitress on the floor who'd been stabbed, and Aggie instructs the photographer to take a picture. A policeman objects to Aggie disturbing the crime scene, and Aggie socks the cop with her purse. For a new story to have legs, that story has to have a continuation, a, a sense of mystery and drama and tragedy to connect readers to the event. And a good nickname is insufficient as a hook on its own. I mentioned previously that the Hearst newspapers were much more successful in creating lurid headlines and nicknames. One significant example would be how the Los Angeles Times came up with a nickname for Richard Ramirez as, quote, the Valley Intruder. But the Herald Examiner came up with the Night Stalker, the far better name. 
Indeed, there's a hint of classism in the Los Angeles Times nickname, Valley Intruder, as if the crime is a Valley-exclusive problem, as if its purpose is to reassure the reader, don't worry, this is a long way from the Wilshire Corridor. Something that happens in the San Fernando Valley shouldn't worry anyone in Beverly Hills. In fact, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, was very willing to travel. He killed people in San Francisco, in Irvine, in Monterey Park, in Diamond Bar, in Burbank, Northridge, Whittier, and Sierra Madre. Nicknames were never exclusively about flowers, not in 1947 or in any time period. Commonly, nicknames arise from some unique aspect of the violent crime or the weapon involved. So, for your amusement, I have compiled a short history of murder-related press names in Los Angeles. Tiger Woman. Woman hammers her rival to the ground. Clara Phillips buys a claw hammer on the afternoon of June 10, 1922, and batters the head of Alberta Meadows, a rival for her husband's affection then crushes the victim's chest with a 50-pound rock as an exclamation point. Babes of Inglewood. The murder and rape of three girls aged 10 and 11. Brickback murder. That's very much an unusual murder weapon. Serial killer Robert Nixon fatally strikes Edna Warden and her 12-year-old daughter with a brick in Los Angeles, April 3rd, 1937. Red Rose murder. A cloth rose under the body at the crime site. B-Girl, Alice Burns, is murdered December 28, 1939. Burns leaves a skid row bar with down-and-out saxophone player John Revis after midnight. They park in an east downtown abandoned coal yard. Burns is stabbed multiple times. Revis goes on the lam. The story has a long life because Revis successfully avoids capture for weeks, and as long as he's a fugitive, he's in the headlines. White Gardenia Murder A crushed corsage under the body at the dump site. Ora Murray, 42-year-old, is happy to dance with a handsome younger man on the night of July 7, 1943. Roger Gardner suggests Aura come with him in his convertible to see the lights of Hollywood Boulevard. In the morning, her bludgeoned and strangled body is found in a flower bed at the edge of a golf course parking lot. Red Ribbon Murder. Woman shot five times in her own car, dies clutching ribbon in hand. Olive Gase Miller, 31, waitress, leaves after her shift at the Turf Cafe at Pico and Figueroa and shot dead in her car in July 1944. The papers print a shocking photo of her body with 10 wounds in the car. Very little follow-up stories in the press after her husband is released. The red ribbon in her hand remains a mystery. L.A. Ripper, the vicious nature of mutilation of victims at two crime scenes on the same day. Otto Stephen Wilson mutilated working girl Virginia Griffin in the Barclay Hotel with a butcher knife. Wilson then goes to the Million Dollar Movie Theater and watches a Boris Karloff movie, then mutilates a second prostitute, Lillian Johnson, with a razor at the Joyce Hotel, slicing her from top to bottom. Wilson is arrested within hours as he's chatting up a third woman at a bar a few doors away. Torso murder, shocking dismembered victim. Temple City Sheriff Arthur Eggers spies his wife's lover running out of the house. When confronted, Dorothy laughs at him. 
He shoots her in the heart. Arthur chops her head and hands off and tosses the disembodied limbs and torso out of the car window as he drives through canyon roads. Red hibiscus murder. Woman found dead in flower bush in public park. Naomi Tullis Cook, 52 years old, is drunk and sleeping at night in a public bench. She's bludgeoned, raped, and slain, then rolled into the flower bushes in Lincoln Park in East Los Angeles, December 10, 1946. Minimal press coverage, no follow-up after Hispanic youth gang charged and then released. Lipstick murder, a message on the body at the crime scene. On February 10, 1947, Jeannie French is stomped to death on a remote road and dragged a few feet onto the vacant lot. She has the nickname the Flying Nurse when she was alive. She was 44 years old. In the majority of these murders, the name is given. It comes organically from the crime scene. The cloth rose is under the body. The white gardenia corsage is under the body. The post-mortem ripper butchery, the headless torso. The press could have gone with Jeannie French's real nickname, the Flying Nurse, but it was lipstick on the dead body that makes the murder stand out from others. Again, note how unique the Black Dahlia name truly is. Even the killer adapts the Black Dahlia name for himself, so the Black Dahlia Avenger, he is famous and anonymous. Often, there's going to be a word that makes the trial unique as well, and they'll use that in the press. So examples of press nicknames that arise situationally from the action of the accused. Rattlesnake murder, where the snake is the murder weapon. In August of 1935, Robert James buys two rattlesnakes to kill his 25-year-old wife, Mary, and collect the insurance money. The snakes bite, but Mary is resilient. So Robert, after waiting for hours, tires of watching Mary cling to life and drowns her in the bathtub, because he's waiting for his witnesses to come over and discover the body. Batman murder. A tiny man has a secret life in the attic. The diminutive lover of Dolly Osterreich, Otto Sandhuber, 4'11", hides at night in the Osterreich Silver Lake attic reading Pulp Fiction and emerges during the day as her lover. On August 22, 1922, when the Batman in the attic interrupts a loud argument with two handguns and murders Fred Osterreich. Sadly, there's no joker smile in this bad man murder. The white flame murder. Blind passion explodes on a piano bench. Paul Wright shoots his wife and her lover, his best friend, in 1932 when he finds them together at a piano bench at 4 a.m. and claims he was not sane at the time because of the white flame of passion. Defense attorney Jerry Geiser represents Wright, who is acquitted of double murder. So the Black Dahlia. This is the movie noir movie title Wordplay. And so as discussed, the Blue Dahlia is the name of a nightclub on Sunset Boulevard. No one wears flowers in their hair in the movie. The Black Dahlia name doesn't originate from the crime scene or the method of the murder. The name is not given by the newspapers. It was found by the reporters and the police and given by the public. So it's commonly suggested that it's ironic that Elizabeth Short's dreams of being an actress. However, she achieves fame and death, not in life. That broad statement is neither profound nor true. 
Consider the mysterious deaths of true Hollywood stars like Natalie Wood or Thelma Todd. To me, that's the irony of this case, that the American public is more fascinated by the mystery of the Black Dahlia than the deaths of famous stars. Our culture has assigned a character arc to this young lost soul, this homeless dreamer and drifter. Because this resonates with the American culture as it touches on the great American dream of a nobody who becomes somebody. The most common theme in American movies, from the simple plot of a chorus girl who becomes a megastar to complex stories like The Great Gatsby or The Last Picture Show. Irony in the Black Dahlia case is that Elizabeth Short becomes the Los Angeles angel of death. So many lesser talents arrive in Los Angeles who believe that the American dream is going to apply to them. The Black Dahlia epithet is spontaneously created by citizens of this culture of Los Angeles who judge Elizabeth Short as a newbie, yet another stranger who comes to town and tries too hard to be noticed. Using a flower name as the murder title in a headline has absolutely no special value in a newspaper. Look at the list we just went over. Any news reader would be thirsty to learn more about the tiger girl or the rattlesnake killer than the red hibiscus murder. Which is more an evocative name? The white flame murder or the white carnation? When members of the press heard the Black Dahlia spoken, they knew they had a seductive and mysterious nom de guerre for this young girl who had suffered horrific death. I'm going to spend a few minutes discussing the murder that speaks to the same level of shock and fame in its day to the Black Dahlia in 1947. And this is the story of Winnie Ruth Judd, who's become the patron saint of death for Phoenix, Arizona. Importantly, Mrs. Judd made bold headlines in Los Angeles after she arrived by train in 1931 with two large trunks and a hat box. Winnie Ruth Judd, 26, suffering from tuberculosis, has moved to Phoenix, Arizona for her health and finds a job and new friends at the Grunau Memorial Clinic, working as a medical secretary, Annie Lewa, X-ray technician, and Sammy Samuelson, fellow tuberculosis sufferer, quickly become friends with Winnie and roommates. The friendship between the girls becomes strained, however, when likable married lumber baron Jack Halloran dates all three women. High-strung Winnie moves out. The girls still work together and remain cordial. On the night of October 16, 1931, Annie and Sammy invite Winnie back to her old apartment for cards and conversation. Winnie defers as she has a date with Jack. When Jack doesn't show, the emotionally wounded Winnie decides to visit after all. What was to be conversation and cards around a table goes badly and then gets much worse. Ruth's jealousy and resentment fueled by alcohol and luminol reach a crescendo amid scandalous accusations of syphilis and syphilitic love. Luminol, a barbiturate, is primarily described as a medication that can control seizures. In Judd's day, it was an over-the-counter pill advertised to help with a wide swath of complaints including drug addiction, insomnia, and insanity. In fact, it's a highly addictive drug that promotes anxiety, nightmares, and mood swings. It's a decidedly poor choice of medicine for anyone suffering from depression 
or with a bipolar disorder. Ruth will argue with her friends, and this results in a lengthy three-way struggle with an ironing board and a 25 caliber pistol that leaves three wounded and two dead. Ruth is shot in the hand. Adding to the mystery, Jack Holleran's car is seen on the street. What did he know? What did he do? What sort of game is he playing? Is he playboy or pimp? Annie Lawal has been recently arrested for pandering at the prestigious Monroe Hotel in Phoenix. Now the question for Winnie, what to do with the bodies? Her solution does seem like an idea a drug addict would come up with. In comparison, a savvy businessman like Jack Holleran would likely take one of his lumber trucks to the middle of the desert at night and let the bodies turn to dust and bones. Ruth, although she is slight and wounded, finds the strength to bisect Sammy and disembowel Annie and place their body parts into a heavy trunk with several large suitcases. The scope of this job suggests she might have had help with a man with a saw, so Holleran is suspected. Three men have to help Winnie get her trunks under the truck on the way to the train station. Ruth borrows $10 from a neighbor for the ticket and takes her problems with her on the night train to Los Angeles where her brother and husband live. She expects they will help her dump the bodies of the victims into the deep water of the Pacific Ocean. The Santa Fe train arrives at 7.45 a.m. at Union Station. Winnie locates her brother, Burton McKinnell, at the USC campus where he's a junior. Burton brings his car to the train station to help Winnie with her baggage innocently. He has no idea when he needs help with dead bodies. Commonly, hunters will try to sneak game meats onto the train, so baggage agent Arthur Anderson smells off odors and see blood leaking from a trunk, simply assumes it's illegal venison, and asks Ruth, what's in the trunks? Just personal things, she replies. There's something wrong with them, Anderson said. Burton is quoted in the newspaper saying, One of the boys I knew during the time I worked there last year met us. Sister took her baggage checks. We went over to the trunks and they asked us if we smelled anything. I was amazed, horrified. Sister was calm and told the baggage man she couldn't open the trunk there because she didn't have the keys. She said she would telephone Dr. Judd, but I said, Oh, let's drive to Santa Monica and get them. We walked outside. I hardly dared look at Sister. Listen, Burton, she leaned over and said, the less you have to do with this, the better off you'll be. I said, now, if you're in trouble, I'll do anything to help you. All right, how much money have you? She asked. I have $5 in change. She said, let me have the $5. Then she said, this'll be all right at this corner. That was at 7th and Broadway. It was half past noon. I said, beat it. That's the best thing you can do. She got out of the car and then faded into the crowd. By 4.30 that afternoon, tired of waiting for Judd to return, Anderson called the LAPD to report the bloody trunks and Detective Lieutenant Frank Ryan arrives at Central Station, meeting Anderson in front of the trunks. Detective Ryan breaks open the larger trunk and nestled between the bedding and papers, quote, we saw the head of a woman in the corner of the trunk, end quote. The largest police manhunt to date ensues as they seek the trunk murderess. Headline, 
greatest police hunt in history of West fails as a mate pleads over radio for surrender. The police interview the husband, Dr. Judd, in Santa Monica and re-interview the brother. Nothing is learned. Police discover that Burton has a cabin and they find uneaten food, two slices of cream pie and four sandwiches. They wait for Winnie at the cabin, but she doesn't show. Now, there's no end of sightings. Winnie is hitchhiking on PCH. She's bun-burring at the Westminster Hotel in downtown. She's lounging in Beverly Glen with her brother and flying to Marshfield, Oregon, for some reason. She's claimed to be making threatening phone calls to witnesses in Phoenix, and none of this is true. Winnie Ruth Judd is not seen or heard. And the headlines are fantastic. Strange triangle revealed in Phoenix tragedy. Because all three girls live together, there are hints of sex parties. Private lives of trunk murderer principals checked for link to fiendish narcotic ring. Because they all worked at a medical clinic. Then, something interesting begins, culturally speaking. The longer Winnie Ruth Judd avoids capture, the more she becomes a sympathetic character in the eyes of the public, like Robin Hood or Bonnie and Clyde, after a while, citizens begin to root for Ruth, and the nickname evolves from Trunk Murderess to the Velvet Tigress. What a fabulous upgrade. The Tigress surrenders. On the 23rd of October, she meets her estranged husband, Dr. William Judd, at the Biltmore Hotel, and he whisks her away to a nearby mortuary where she surrenders to the police. The Hearst newspapers are so enthralled with the headlines, Hearst pays for Dr. Judd's exclusive story. Where did Ruth hide? She's broke and her picture is on every front page. Winnie walks 13 miles, a five-hour journey on foot from the downtown train station to the La Pina Sanitarium in Altadena where she had stayed previously as a tuberculosis patient. Winnie, with her hand bandaged and her harmless demeanor, looks very much like a patient, so no one notices when she finds an empty room and lies down on the bed. She stays there undiscovered for four days, sneaking milk from another patient's refrigerator. After agreeing to surrender to her husband, she hitchhikes back to downtown and walks into the Broadway department store where she'd once worked. Quote, I stood around staring at the people I knew or knew me. I was in such a stupor that I got locked up in the store at night. I slept in the furniture department under a rug. When I awakened the next morning, people were rushing all about me, going about their business. <laughs> I think that should be the question of the day. Raise your hand if you've ever slept under a rug. <laughs> Typically, a rug is involved in the murder story because you're going to roll up the dead body and get it out of the house. William Randolph Hearst inserts himself even further and pays for Judd's defense. The Randolph Hearst lawyers seek a trial. Is Ruth guilty? Is she insane? Ruth is found guilty of first-degree murder by a jury of 12 men. Women are not allowed in juries in Arizona at this time. Judd was sentenced to be hanged. However, her death sentence is overturned after being found mentally incompetent by the state. Winnie is then sent to the Arizona State Asylum for the Insane. She escapes from the institution six times between 1933 and 1963. 
Of course she does. She's the Velvet Tigress. The severed body of the Black Dahlia of 1947 refreshes the memory of this 1931 crime in the minds of the police, the press, and the public. Sammy Samuelson's bisected body fuels the theory that a woman could have killed the Black Dahlia. Police and a number of reporters invest many hours seeking witnesses at various lesbian bars for insight and for suspects, especially concerned with Beth Short's secretive last days. Winnie Ruth Judd dismembers Sammy Samuelson in order to hide evidence. The body needs to be transported in a trunk. The Black Dahlia was tortured and drained of blood, then severed and displayed as a trophy. But this 1931 movie may be what Mindhunter John Douglas is thinking of when he suggests that Elizabeth Short was bisected because the killer is injured or weakened and needs to cut the body in order to lift and transport it. In both cases, a dramatic commitment of police resources creates a high level of expectation for quick results. And the police methods of these times are shocking by comparison and the interviews with suspects can be violent. Los Angeles police kicked Winnie Ruth Judd's lawyers out of the hospital room in order to ask her questions when she was sedated. Now, a key here for me is that I'm very confident that a person who has lived in Los Angeles for that previous decade would be very aware of the front page headlines that were given to the bloody work of the trunk murderess. It's very clear that the Black Dahlia Avenger desires notoriety. Cutting a body in half ensures that. And maybe the killer remembered that blood was the downfall of Winnie Rudd and therefore drains the body over a bathtub. I acknowledge Mrs. Supposition on my part to suggest that the killer knew of the trunk murderess. However, the Black Dahlia Avenger's need for publicity is very well documented. And someone that reads the newspapers reads the papers. And so attention to the media is consistent very much with an organized killer. There's an untold angle to the white carnation story, and so I've got one more thing to say. The white carnation murder is famous as an Aggie Underwood anecdote, but totally forgotten as a murder. If you Google, quote, white carnation murder, end quote, you get five hits of the story of Aggie Underwood dropping a white carnation on a dead waitress. You get no hits whatsoever on the white carnation murder itself. I can't find the name of the victim or who might have killed her in the newspaper archives. The white carnation murder as a story has vanished. There is no special magic in adding a flower to a dead body on the floor or adding a flower to the headline. The fact is that Aggie hitting a cop with her purse is a better story than a murdered nameless waitress. And Aggie being Aggie, therefore, is the story that survives today. Giving a crime a nickname isn't sufficient to make that crime a repeating news story, much less a legend like the Black Dahlia. It's a small, inoffensive myth that flower headlines are common or significant or useful to the press, but I'm very pleased to dismiss it. At the end of this day, Robert Red Manley is located and arrested at the home of his boss, Harry Palmer. The sought-after Studebaker is found in Mr. Palmer's garage as they've taken Mr. Palmer's car 
on the sales calls in Northern California. Red Manley is described as being well-dressed and willing to take a lie detector test. Thanks for listening. The next podcast will focus on the police and press treatment of witness Robert Red Manley. Until then.